Rainbow Valley is a monthly podcast where your host Scott takes a look at key events and personalities that shaped one of the most influential, vibrant, tumultuous and swinging decades in history. Join us as we celebrate the 1960s with the stories surrounding the music and news events of the decade that shook the world. Throughout the 1960s and the 1970s, the Motown sound filled the radio airwaves, not only in America, but across the world. Names like Martha Reeves, Smokey Robinson and Diana Ross produced hit after hit, year in, year out. Baby Love, Dancing in the Streets and Tears of a Clown would hit the Billboard and the UK Top 10 charts, along with songs by The Marvelettes, Stevie Wonder and The Four Tops. In the world of popular music, there are few things more magical than a duet. Especially a duet that's done right. A perfect blend of two halves of a song that come together seamlessly that creates something whole. And for a while, the Motown sound would have its own stable of duet performers. Most famously, those by Marvin Gaye, who along with Kim Weston, Mary Wells and Omer Heard, would create some of the most famous and best-loved duets of all time. But it's perhaps with Tammy Terrell that the duet finally came of age. A faultless combination of two voices and singing styles. That of Gay, the romantic crooner, and Terrell, whose perfect soulful voice was matched only by her beauty. And together, they would achieve an incredible run of chart success with both singles and albums. Songs such as Ain't No Mountain High Enough, You're All I Need To Get By, Ain't Nothing Like The Real Thing and The Onion Song proved to be some of the most successful and best-remembered songs from the Detroit hit factory. But behind these classic records lies a story of tragedy. A story of a life cut desperately short, bringing to an end what could have potentially seen the creation of one of the greatest pop and soul singers the world had ever seen. A life full of tragedies that was masked by a seemingly happy exterior. The story of a woman who attempted to persevere through all of life's hardships by doing what brought her the most joy, singing, performing and entertaining. But sadly, in the end, she had no control over her fate. Ladies and gentlemen, Rainbow Valley is proud to present the story of Tammy Terrell. I'm not only a fighter, I'm a poet, 
I'm a prophet, I'm the resurrector, I'm the savior of the bottom world. If it wasn't for me, the game would be dead. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. They think it's all over. It is now. It's four. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Our story begins back in 1945, just after the end of the Second World War. Tammy Terrell was born on the 29th of April that year, and her parents, who were expecting a boy, gave her a version of her father's name, Thomas. Her full name, Thomasina Winifred Montgomery. She was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Her father, a local wardsman or politician, as well as the proprietor of the town's barbershop. Her mother, Jenny, an unsuccessful actress. Music was an important part of the family life, with the entire family not only singing in the local church, but at home surrounded by large numbers of friends and family. Young Thomasina was the elder of two siblings and soon became affectionately known as Tommy. And while life was generally good in the Montgomery household, she had to witness her mother deal with bouts of clinical depression. There were several occasions when her mother was committed to psychiatric hospitals and was subjected to electroshock therapy in order to combat her crippling mental health issues. Tommy would help look after her family whenever her mother was ill while still trying to keep up with her studies. But in 1956, at the age of 11, something happened that would change the course of her life. Whilst walking home one evening from a neighbourhood party, she was attacked and raped by three older boys. The trauma she suffered as a consequence is of course unimaginable, but one thing that we are aware of was that around this time young Tommy began to suffer from severe migraine headaches. The boys were eventually arrested and convicted. There has been no suggestion that these debilitating headaches were caused by the attack, In fact, it was generally believed by the family at the time that they may actually have been genetic, inherited from a mother, a victim of her own dark depression. And it had not been for several years until the truth was finally diagnosed. Tommy, for a while, isolated herself and became very withdrawn. And then a few months later, there was a drastic and noticeable change in her behaviour. Her sisters would state years later that Tommy's morals became somewhat lax and indeed the after effects of the attacks are becoming more flirtatious around boys and certainly more promiscuous.
In the summer of 1957, a romantic comedy was released in cinemas starring Leslie Nielsen and star of Singing in the Rain, Debbie Reynolds. Generally forgotten now, it's probably fair to say that one of the songs in the movie, sung by Reynolds, is probably better known. Simply called Tammy, it reached number one on the Billboard chart and number two in the UK. Young Tommy fell in love with the movie, the song and the name. And at the age of 12, she announced to the world that she would now be known as Tammy Montgomery. I knew if he knew what I Incidentally, the song would also serve as the inspiration for Berry Gordy's first record label. In 1959, Gordy set up a new record company and wanted to call it Tammy Records after the song, but the name was already taken, and so Tamla was chosen instead. The main Motown label was created later that year and the two labels were incorporated into the Motown Record Company in 1960. Tamla would go on to serve as a primary R&B and soul subsidiary throughout Motown's existence. But of course more on Berry Gordy and Motown in a little while. As mentioned earlier, Tammy was no stranger to performing in public, having been part of the local church choir from an early age. And with her new change in attitude came a new confidence. And throughout 1957, she would enter numerous talent contests, pretty much winning every single one. This in turn would lead to her opening club acts for people such as Gary US Bonds and Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells. Incredible when you consider the ordeal that she'd been subjected to by her attackers, her mother's failing health, her own health issues, and the fact that she was only 12 years old. These club dates got a notice by producer Luther Dixon, who in 1960 signed her to her first record deal. She signed under the one subsidiary of Scepter Records, and in 1960, Tammy Montgomery released a debut single, If You See Bill. Listening to this record, it's easy to see what attracted Dixon to Tammy. The preternaturally mature voice is absolutely incredible here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
second more upbeat single followed in 1962 entitled The Voice of Experience. Neither songs would make much impact on the charts, but Tammy would continue to find work around the clubs and local TV. She'd also do demos for the Shirelles, as producer Luther Dixon was confident that she may eventually become a girl group vocalist herself. But Tammy's contract with Scepter ended soon after, and so, moving to Checker Records, she released a duet with Jimmy Radcliffe. Produced by Burt Burns, it was entitled If I Would Marry You. And once again, the voice that belied her years was evident throughout. And as if this powerful singing was not enough, Tammy also co-wrote the song. Whoa, 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 I couldn't tell single again failed to make any impression on the chart and so Tammy announced to what amounted to a semi-retirement from the music business and enrolled in the University of Pennsylvania where she majored in pre-med despite being tortured by the unforgiving headaches that have been part of her life now for several years. She stayed on at school for two years, but sometime in the middle of this, she was asked by the Iceman Jerry Butler to sing with him in a series of nightclub performances. Continuing with her studies, she still managed to find time to tour. And it was during this tour that she met someone that would form the next brief but brutal chapter in her young life. Former, soon to be known to the world as the godfather of soul, James Brown, was next to fall under the spell of Tammy Montgomery. 
Bewitched by a performance one night in 1963 at the Tan Playhouse in Philadelphia, Brown found himself introduced to the pretty 18-year-old and soon after enlisted her as part of his backing singers for his review concert tours. Brown would take up production duties on her next single released on his own record label, Try Me, and the song called I Cried would be her first record to reach the charts, although only just reaching number 99 on the Billboard Hot 100. relationship between James Brown and Tammy Montgomery was not a healthy one during the nine months they were together on the road. Many rumours flew about surrounding the pair, and although they were romantically and sexually involved, there was no real love in the relationship. And it was no secret that Brown was regularly beating the young teenager. Bandmates and fellow backing singers were aware of the regular beatings that Tammy was receiving as she desperately tried to cover up the bruises that would appear on her body. Until one night, enough was enough. Bobby Bennett, former member of the Famous Flames, witnessed an attack on Tammy so severe that he just had to take action. The story goes that one evening, James Brown had noticed that Tammy had not been watching his entire performance on stage from the wings as she would usually do. Returning to the dressing room after the show, he beat Tammy mercilessly. In Bobby Bennett's own words, he said, He beat Tammy terrible. She was bleeding, shedding blood. Tammy left him because she didn't want her butt whipped. And Tammy did leave Brown later that evening with help from her fellow bandmates, They contacted her parents who immediately jumped on a bus and rescued her from any further harm. But back home, the headaches would continue. Detroit, Michigan, the largest and most populous city in the state and the largest city on the US-Canadian border. Strategically positioned along the Great Lakes Waterway, in the 1800s the city emerged as a major port and transportation hub. America's wealthiest businessmen were attracted here and the city expanded steadily from the 1830s thanks to the rise of shipping, shipbuilding and the manufacturing industries. And in 1896, encouraged by a flourishing carriage trade, 
Henry Ford built his first automobile in a rented workshop on Mack Avenue, leading to the founding of the Ford Motor Company in 1903. This was soon followed by other automotive pioneers such as William C. Durant, the Dodge Brothers, Packard and William Chrysler, all of whom set up incredibly successful manufacturing plants in the city. This, of course, established Detroit's status in the early 20th century as the world's automotive capital. Detroit, Michigan, Motortown. One man who worked right in the heart of this busy industrial landscape was Berry Gordy Jr. A former professional boxer, he had tried his hand briefly at running his own record store, which folded partly due to the fact that he was focusing on stocking jazz records when all his customers wanted was R&B. And so when the store eventually went out of business, what else was there to do in Detroit aside from making cars? Gordy found himself on the Lincoln Mercury plant assembly line in 1955, and he soon found out that there was a particular benefit to the dull monotony of putting up holstery in cars all day long. He could compose songs in his head while he was working. To cut a long story short, Barry Gordy gave up the job at the car factory to dedicate himself to music once more. He knew Jackie Wilson's manager through a family connection and ended up co-writing Reap Petite in 1957, as well as two other Wilson hits, Lonely Teardrops and To Be Loved. He started his own music publishing company, Joe Bett, and realising that this particular business wasn't as lucrative as he had hoped, he then decided to form his own record company. The rest, they say, is history. Using $800 that he borrowed from his family, Gordy formed Tamala Records on January 12, 1959. When he set up shop in a house on Detroit's West Grand Boulevard, he chose the aspirational name Hitsville for its headquarters. And there was one particular label owned by Tamla that would come to embody the company as a whole. Its name, Motown. And where the big three automotive companies had factories in Detroit that were churning out car after car, Motown would assemble hit after hit, producing soul and pop classics that changed America. About 30 minutes walk away from Henry Ford's first workshop near Bagley Avenue stood Detroit's famous 20 Grand nightclub. And it was here, in 1965, that Barry Gordy Jr. first spotted Tammy Montgomery. Away now from the harsh control and severe beatings she received from James Brown, she was performing on stage again touring with Jerry Butler. What Gordy witnessed for the first time that night was something that many had already seen for themselves. A performer no longer a child whose easy delivery and slightly husky drawl simply ooze sex appeal. Goldie, by now an expert at recognising pure talent when he saw it, could see that Tammy Montgomery was something special. 
equipped with a voice that could accommodate almost any melody and slide just as comfortably into singing harmony. Tammy Montgomery signed for Tamla Motown on her 20th birthday in 1965. Immediately, one of the conditions of her contract came into force, along with a few slight modifications to her appearance, hair, makeup, etc. Tammy with a Y became Tammy with an I, and Montgomery became Terrell. Barry Gordy truly believed that her future as Tammy Montgomery had reached an impasse and it was time for a rebirth, so to speak. It was also said that he thought that the name Tammy Montgomery was just that little bit too long to print on a record label. Her first single to be released on the legendary label was I Can't Believe You Love Me. Breaking into the Billboard Hot 100, it peaked at number 72, but it gave Tammy Terrell her first top 30 hit as it reached number 27 in the R&B chart. And that was the catalyst for her career to truly take off. She joined the Motortown Review show opening for no less than The Temptations. And it was on this tour that she met The Temptations lead singer David Ruffin and started what can only be described as a blazing love affair. And the start of another devastating chapter of her life. Still battling the pounding headaches that were occurring ever more frequently now. Tammy fell head over heels in love with Ruffin. And by all accounts, they were quite an item. David Ruffin proposed to Tammy Terrell in 1966, less than a year after first meeting her. And if that wasn't surprise enough, imagine Tammy's shock when she discovered that Ruffin had a wife, three children, and another girlfriend in Detroit. Also recorded this year, although not released as singles, Tammy's interpretation of two future classic songs. The Isley Brothers' This Old Heart of Mine and Stevie Wonder's All I Do Is Think About You. All of these records as well as her touring reinforced Tammy Terrell's reputation nationally as someone to watch out for. She was on the verge of becoming a major international performing and recording artiste. And through all of this... The headaches were getting stronger and stronger. the beatings that Tammy Terrell took at the hands of James Brown were sickening enough. The stories that emerged about the abuse she suffered whilst with David Ruffin were enough to turn even the strongest stomach. 
The relationship was already tumultuous, with a lot of their dirty laundry being aired publicly. Bandmates and crew members were witness to the couple's public arguments and sometimes physical confrontations. In fact, there were rumours that Ruffin would attack Terrell with a machete or beat her with a motorcycle helmet. Ruffin's road manager at the time even reported that Ruffin had even set about her head with a hammer. Marvin Gaye always dreamed of being a crooner. More a fan of old-style popular music than the new stuff, he adored artists such as Nat King Cole and Perry Como. Motown entertained him for a while, allowing him to perform jazz music and standards. But this was short-lived as the label pushed him towards more modern, upbeat stuff, Songs that will forever be associated with him. Stubborn kind of fellow, can I get a witness? And how sweet it is to be loved by you. Ain't got nobody to call my own. So please turn on your magic beam. And Mr. Sandman, bring me Berry Gordy, the father of Motown, had bigger ideas. Gordy decided that Gay's future lay as one half of a dynamic duet team. After all, in Gordy's mind, duet albums could potentially double the customer base. The first of Marvin Gaye's duet partners was the then queen of Motown, Mary Wells, probably best known for her number one smash, My Guy. They released an album together, entitled appropriately, Together. Released in 1964, it became the first charted album for Gay, peaking at number 42 on the Billboard Pop Album Chart and yielding two top 20 singles, Once Upon a Time and What's the Matter With You, Baby. Ironically, during her most successful year, Wells was having problems with Motown over her original recording contract, which she had signed at the age of 17. She was also reportedly angry that the money made from My Guy was being used to promote the Supremes who had found success with Where Did Our Love Go, just as My Guy was promoted using the profits from another earlier hit Motown song. Though Gordy reportedly attempted to renegotiate with Wells, the singer still asked to be freed from her contract with Motown. Well, 
And so Berry Gordy still intent that Marvin Gaye should continue as part of a duet enlisted Kim Weston for one album. Take Two consisted of similar material to the work put out by Gay and Wells, but over the next year or so it proved to be far more popular with the record-buying public. The first single, What Good Am I Without You, made it to number 28 on the R&B chart, but in 1966 a single was released from the album that became Marvin Gaye's most successful single to date. Takes Two was produced by Kim Weston's then-husband, long-time gay collaborator William Mickey Stevenson. It reached number 14 on the Billboard Pop Chart, number 4 on Billboard's Soul Singles Chart, and was also Marvin Gaye's first major hit in the UK, where it reached number 16 in early 1967. Incidentally, there was another duet partner for Marvin Gaye in between Mary Wells and Kim Weston. Please, one more kiss. Kiss, kiss, kiss. Like Oma Heard, also known by a married name of Oma Drake, had two brief periods at Motown in the 60s, several years apart. And in 1964, she found herself in the running to fill the gap left by Mary Wells. There's not much out there on what actually happened, but by all accounts, Oma was only really an outside bet to take over from Wells and somehow just missed her chance to shine. Her one and only Motown single ended up as a much-demanded rarity among the Northern Soul music collectors, and she's often misidentified as Oma Page, a different Motown singer. Her duet demos with Marvin Gaye were eventually released in the early 1990s and she returned briefly to Motown via the Cheezer label as part of the long-forgotten, if remembered at all, the girl group Dorothy, Omer and Zelfa. And so... Enter duet partner number four. By now, Tammy Terrell had managed to break free from the abusive clutches of David Ruffin. 
Years later, Marvin Gaye would record that he didn't know just how gifted a singer she was until they began singing together. Motown had a song in mind for the first single. Legendary songwriters Nick Ashford and Valerie Simpson had written the song prior to joining Motown. British soul queen Dusty Springfield wanted to record it, but the duo declined hoping that it would give them a foot in the door at Motown. And that it did. Ain't No Mountain High Enough rocketed into the top 20 of the Billboard Top 100 and reached an impressive number three on the R&B chart. What's surprising about the early duets between Gay and Terrell is that they were not actually recorded together in the studio. Terrell, at the first recording session, was nervous and quite intimidated at first, as she'd not rehearsed the lyrics. She recorded her vocals alone and Gay's were added at a later date. It became Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell's signature duet, and led to several more songs penned by Ashford and Simpson. Covered by several other artists over the years, most notably Diana Ross, this particular version was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame in 1999 and is regarded today as one of the most important records ever released by Motown. Touring together and appearing on TV, Tammy Terrell was now the star she always dreamed of being. And following on from the success of Ain't No Mountain High Enough, the pair's second single, Your Precious Love, proved to be even more popular, reaching number five on the pop chart and just missing the top spot on the R&B chart by peaking at number two. Fans of 60s Motown music will often cite the Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell duets as some of their favourites, and it's not difficult to see why. Aside from their huge popularity and catchy soul and pop tunes, the chemistry between the pair was evident. With a combination of Terrell's crystal clear vocals, Gay's soulful, soft yet urgent delivery, it was the dream team that Berry Gordy had wished for. 
usually shy and laid-back Marvin Gaye, who hated touring, found inspiration for performing live from the effervescent and confident Tammy Terrell. Between 1967 and 1969, there would be three hit albums, United, You're All I Need and Easy. And the hit singles, thanks mainly to Ashford and Simpson, just kept on coming.
But as the hits kept on coming, Tammy Terrell, who was finally establishing herself as a performer of the highest order, was being subjected even more frequently to the migraines and the headaches that she'd been subjected to since childhood. Sure, she would complain of the pain she was suffering, but would insist to people close to her that she was well enough to perform. On October 14th, 1967, Terrell and Gay were performing at Hamden Sydney College just outside the town of Farmville, Virginia. It would prove to be the show that confirmed that things were far from well with Terrell's health. Performing their now familiar set of hit tunes to an enthusiastic audience, Marvin Gaye noticed mid-song that something wasn't quite right. Tammy Terrell started to collapse on stage and in one swift move Marvin Gaye dropped his microphone, ran towards her and caught her in his arms before she could hit the floor. Carrying her off stage, an ambulance was called and she was rushed swiftly to a nearby hospital. At the age of just 22, Tammy Terrell was diagnosed with a malignant tumour on the right side of her brain. Soon after the first of many surgical procedures, she still valiantly managed to record You're All I Need to Get By and Ain't Nothing Like the Real Thing, two of the pair's biggest and best-loved singles, both of which reached number one on the R&B chart. Terrell would even manage to perform for a while, but as her optimism grew stronger, her condition worsened as she continued to struggle for a total of eight brain surgeries. Berry Gordy covering all the medical bills. By 1969, Tammy Terrell eventually had to retire from live performances on the strict orders of her doctors. Motown issued her first and only solo album, Irresistible, early in the year, but she was far too ill to promote it. All the tracks had been recorded earlier in her career and had subsequently been kept on the shelf for some time. The third duet album, Easy, was also released in 1969 and there are two conflicting stories as to how it came about. According to reports, Tammy was so ill at this point she was unable to record anything at all. Motown made the decision that Valerie Simpson, one half of Ashford and Simpson, should go sing in her place. Simpson herself disputes this fact, saying that although Tammy was desperately ill, weighing just 93 pounds, She was strong enough over a couple of days to be brought into the studio in a wheelchair to sing and record over the guide vocals that Simpson had laid down. And so the hits continued. The Easy album produced the singles Good Loving Ain't Easy To Come By, What You Gave Me, California Soul and the UK Top 10 hit The Onion Song. In 1969, Marvin Gaye would continue to tour without Tammy Terrell by his side. Sometimes as a solo artist, sometimes 
with other female Motown stars deputising in her place. But it wasn't the same. He would send cards and call her every week. The pair had become incredibly close. Although not lovers, they had developed not just a professional bond, but a personal one as well. A deep love and admiration for each other. Despite all the pain, the surgeries and the setbacks, Tammy remained determined that she would get better and sing again. And nothing demonstrates this better than an incident that occurred in late 1969. Marvin Gaye was headlining at the world-famous Apollo Theatre in Harlem along with Carla Thomas. In the audience that night, a gravely ill and very frail Tammy Terrell. She could barely walk and talk, let alone sing or perform, but the drive to do that was still so very strong. Marvin Gaye began to sing Ain't No Mountain High Enough, and according to family that were there with her that evening, she managed to just contain herself. That was until Marvin started to sing You're All I Need To Get By. Tammy, in the audience, started to sing along as loud and as powerful as her weakened body would allow. Marvin Gaye, peering past the footlights into the audience, recognised his true duet partner. He screamed Tammy, rushed over to her side, and the pair sang the song together one last time before receiving a standing ovation from a weeping audience. Partially paralysed and wheelchair-bound, Tammy Terrell would eventually lose her hair, along with an incredible amount of weight as well as some of her memory. It was a heartbreaking, tragic end as she slipped into a coma and died on the 16th of March 1970, just six weeks before her 25th birthday. 
Marvin Gaye in many ways never recovered. He abandoned his own recording career for over a year after her death and didn't return to performing live until 1972. He adopted an introspection that informed his brilliant career-changing album What's Going On in 1971. It's also generally acknowledged that Marvin Gaye's depression and substance abuse was a direct consequence of the grief that he felt over Tammy's death. It was said that he blamed himself in some ways, believing that he could have stopped the beatings she had received from James Brown and David Ruffin, although it's highly likely that the tumour had been present for many years before. Tammy Terrell's funeral was held at the Jane's Methodist Church in Philadelphia. At the time of her death, she was engaged to one of her doctors, Ernie Garrett, who said that Tammy's mother had angrily barred everyone at Motown from attending the funeral. This was because she believed that Motown stood back and did nothing to protect her from the violence she endured at the hands of David Ruffin. Everyone at Motown, that is apart from Marvin Gaye, whom she felt quite rightly was her daughter's closest friend. Marvin Gaye stood up that day in front of sobbing friends and family and with your All I Need to Get By playing in the background, valiantly fighting back his own tears, he delivered the final eulogy. Tammy Terrell's death at the age of 24 is one of soul music's great tragedies and it seems almost impossible not to wonder what her career, as well as Marvin Gaye's, might have been under different and better circumstances. But thankfully, she's left a marvellous legacy of some of the greatest songs to have been recorded for Tamla Motown throughout the 1960s. August the 3rd, 1961, London's National Gallery proudly unveiled its latest acquisition. What is known as the bust portrait of the Duke of Wellington by the Spanish master Francisco de Goya, painted during the Peninsular War and completed in 1814. 18 days later, the portrait was stolen in one of the most daring yet bizarre robberies of the 20th century. The theft made headline news, stumped all attempts by Scotland Yard to solve the crime and was even referenced in the first James Bond movie, Dr No. It would prompt the government seven years later to introduce a new criminal offence and involves the unlikeliest of culprits, national protests and even the British TV licensing system. Join me next time as I bring you the story of the theft of the Duke of Wellington. Thanks for listening. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at RV underscore podcast. Join our Facebook group at Facebook forward slash Rainbow Valley Podcast. 
or send us your thoughts and feedback to rainbowvalleypod at gmail.com. This has been a Stinking Paws production. Mm-hmm.